Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten. Good evening and it's good to be together again as we go again into the uh, wonderful book of the book of Revelation. And uh, I trust there will be a blessing in it for you again here tonight. Shall we just bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity again, uh, Lord, that we can turn to your word. And as we study this book, we can see your provision for us here now and today. Lord, you've been very good to us. You tell us what we may expect, what will happen. Sometimes as unlikely as it may seem, but your word is truth. And uh, you do know the end from the beginning. And so make us attentive or retentive. And Lord, that we may benefit from tonight's study. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We saw last week God's response. God's response to the world that is gone astray in its worship to God is well summarized in the three angels' message. Being delivered by an end-time church, which is the remnant church, God's church. And the text that I quoted last week, I'll just repeat again. In Amos, a contemporary of the uh, prophet Isaiah, he says there, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And uh, it's wonderful that God made that provision there. In 95 AD, as John, the last surviving apostle, there has the visions and the prophecies as we find them in the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Revelation. And of course, the book of Revelation is so closely related to the book of Daniel. And uh, yes, it is for our benefits here today. It is our roadmap that we can recognize. The quick... Uh, computation that I referred to last week puts things actually in perspective. When you look at the starting date of the 2,300 years, which is the same as the 490 years of the probation for the Jewish nation, and we actually computed that the 70 weeks, 490 years, would culminate in 34 AD. We talked about that in length. And then if you take the 490 years over the 2,300 years, Lisa is 1,810, and you add the 1,810 years to 34 AD, and you derive at the date that the Millerites uh, arrived at, 1844, which is really, as we, you and I understand, the pre-Advent investigative judgment. And so... We talked about the two harvests. That's interesting. There's a first harvest, there is a second harvest. Now, in the Jewish um, agricultural economy, you had the barley harvest, you had straight away a month after the wheat harvest, uh, that is in the, in the spring northern hemisphere. In the autumn northern hemisphere, you have the citrus and the grape harvest. And uh, there is a symbolism here that mustn't be lost here. In the first harvest, which is really then the wheat harvest, the earth was reaped. So there is a taking up of the wheat from the earth, if you like. 
But in the second harvest, the clusters are gathered. They're not taken up from the earth. They are gathered and uh, both are ripe. In other words, they're not going to change. They are what they are. But one group, the first one, is saved. And the second one, the grape harvest, is unsaved and subject to punishment. Revelation 15, we just touched on that. The first verse refers to another sign in heaven, great and marvelous as he describes it, seven angels having the seven last plagues. The last plagues because when you and I think of the plagues, we think of the ten plagues in Egypt. The incredible thing is that the first three plagues fell of course on the Egyptians and the Israelites, but the last seven plagues of those ten only fell on the Egyptians. And so we, we have there for the expression the seven last plagues, and the reason is that they will fall on the enemies of God's people. So it will happen after probation has closed, after it has been decided who is saved and then, of course, who is unsaved. It's important to know that, very important. For in them the wrath of God is complete. There is no mixture of mercy. It is after the probation and... Uh, unmixed. And I saw something, and then we continue here, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, mingled with fire, and we saw those who have the victory over the beast, ah, that's fascinating, who had the victory over the beast, and over his image, over his image, and note this, and over his mark. Now you and I understand by now, surely, that these people, that he sees there in vision standing there on the sea of glass in heaven, who obviously are part of the saved, who obviously made it into the kingdom of heaven, who obviously were loyal to the Lamb, to God. And he sees them because they had the victory over the beast, the image and the mark. Now that's clear that these people would not have seen death. They were taken up from the earth. And uh, that's a beautiful imagery here. And over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, that's the net result of faithfulness. And it's good to bear that in mind. Having the harps of God, uh, and they sing the song of Moses. Let, let, let's continue here. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb they have a particular song, um, and it says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's a doxology, if you like. For you alone are holy. You alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifest. And notice, and after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now, the temple, of course, the temple you understand is where they had that judgment, that pre-advent investigative judgment, which has been concluded, of course. And he sees in vision the temple of the tabernacle uh, of the testimony, and the testimony, of course, uh, pertains to the Ten Commandments, in heaven was opened. And out of the temple, out of that place where they had that judgment, out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues. He sees 
he sees seven angels with seven last plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and uh, having their chest girded with golden bands, and, and uh, what shall we say, a celestial attire. And then one of the four living creatures, you remember those, these are the seraphim or the cherubim, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now this is the wrath of God that is, remember, unmixed with mercy. And it is going to be poured out, as you will see, on the earth, affecting the enemies of God's people and therefore of God. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, this is very interesting. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. And so the first went, and he poured out his bowl upon the earth. Look what happened. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon the man. They were all affected. And this is, this is globally, because the end time events, the end time criteria are a global affair, a global affair. Very important to realize that on those who had what? The mark of the beast and those who worship his image. Now his image is state and church. It is utilizing the secular entities of this world to forcefully impose a worship commitment which is really the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast we identified, we identified as an unforced worship of, the, of what should be the seventh day Sabbath on the first day of the week. And it's not just that you have to worship on the first day of the week, it will go inside with a prohibition and a persecution if you persist on the seventh day Sabbath. You say, well, that's unlikely. I know, but the problem is the Bible indicates that this will be the case. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. Again, it is global. It is global. Note the description here. It's, it's incredible. And it became blood as of a dead man, as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Can you imagine the mass extinction of sea life as it perhaps washes up on the shores? You can imagine what, what that will do to the ecology. Uh, that's a concept. If, it, if it's globally something very serious to consider, isn't it? Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, notice, springs of water, and they became blood. Again, this is a global thing. This is a global occurrence. And I heard the angel of the waters say, I heard him say, 
You are righteous, O God. You are righteous for the one who is, who was, and who is to come, who is from eternity, because you have judged these things, notice, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and that's all the persecutions throughout the ages, and you have given them blood to drink, and that also has an application on the persecution of God's people right at the end time, when there is, you remember, a death decree invoked. For it is their just due. The angel says God is justified in doing that. And so, obviously, he is. Verse 7, And I heard another from the altar uh, saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. You can see that heaven itself looks at the actions of God, and it, can rec it recognizes, and it, it gives voice to, and it appreciates the justice of the judgments of God. There is justice in this. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. That's interesting. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch man with fire. And uh, man was scorched with great heat, great heat. And uh, notice, they blasphemed the name of God, the character of God, who has power over these plagues. That's interesting. I just want you to understand something. These are people who believe in God. They have a wrong view of God, and they certainly have taken a wrong decision on their worship, which expresses how they are related to God. And it is affirmed here that they are wrong in their relationship with God because they blaspheme God. They blaspheme, they blame God for what he's doing there to them. That is what they do. And they did not repent or give him glory, so they did not change their ways. They persisted in their ways. And that goes to prove one thing. Their relationship with God is not right. Because their worship with God, for God, to God, is not right. Which is an incorrect worship, but also a persecution of those who are involved in a correct worship. And they did not repent and give him glory. So we go to the next one, the fifth angel. And it is remarkable when you read this one. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. Now, the throne of the beast. Do you remember that the dragon gave him his power, his authority, and his throne? We're talking about the locality of Rome, where indeed the primary affliction will be. But because the whole world followed the beast, we again will have a global phenomenon that is a darkness globally, a darkness, by the way, which will be so intense, it is a darkness that actually causes pain. That's interesting. So it is 
uh, reminiscent of the, the plagues as they were poured out over Egypt. You remember that there was a darkness there as well, one of the plagues, and it really afflicted the people tremendously. And so we will have, under the fifth plague, a very intense darkness that will be painful because when you read further, when you read further, and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Notice, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain. What pain? The pain of God, of course, of their boils. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores or boils. That is why they're blaspheming. What is interesting, the source with the first plague, this is indicative of the fact that we have a quick succession of these plagues. It'll be happening over a short time. How short? The Bible doesn't say, but it will be short. But they blaspheme God. They blame God. They are not right with God. And they did not repent of their deeds they did not repent of their deeds. And so, we come to the sixth angel. Now that, that's very interesting. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Notice, notice. And its waters were dried up. Now again in symbolism, waters means multitudes of people. We have the river Euphrates drying up. Not a literal river Euphrates. It is a spiritual application. The river Euphrates was a support for the city of Babylon. You might recall that from the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. So the river Euphrates supported Babylon, the city. And so here we have Babylon in spiritual terms being supported by the waters, namely, spiritually speaking, the Euphrates, these are all the people who follow the beast. And of course, at this time, at this plague, they realize they have been on the wrong side. And they're going to, they're going to attack the very ones that they have been admiring and following all through until this time, because now they realize they have been against God, they have been on the wrong side, and the plagues are indicative of the fact that God's wrath is against them. And they turn against their leaders, they turn against the beast. And so we have a drying up of support, the support base, if you like, of Babylon, because they are no longer following in admiration. They realize they're on the wrong side. And so it says, so that the way of the kings of the East might be prepared. You know, many of the stories in the Old Testament are really an, an an introduction to some of the New Testament predictions. And we know the correlation between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. 
when we read this one, the drying up of the waters of the river Euphrates, so that the king of the east might be prepared, I have no hesitation to take you back to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, the fifth chapter. It's one of the most remarkable stories in, in the Bible. I want you to have a look at this and see if you recognize this. Belshazzar, his farewell party, which is interrupted because there's a writing on the wall. And it says here, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Keep bearing that in mind. You, you know that Babylon, Babylon survived because of the river Euphrates. The river Euphrates gave it its water, and, and because they could flood some of the, 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 the spaces between their separate walls, they would be uh, an impregnable city because they could do that. And with warfare of the day, you just couldn't take that city. And they were surrounded by the Medes and Persians under Cyrus the Great. Now, where did Cyrus come from? What direction did Cyrus come from? Well, Cyrus came from the east, you see. Cyrus came from the east. He was a type of Christ. Because when Cyrus, as you know, that in 539 BC conquered Babylon, a few years later, the Israelites were welcomed, encouraged, in fact, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. He let the oppressed the prisoners go free. And he even supported them. Cyrus was so impressed with the Bible studies he no doubt received from Daniel, who was on site. It was amazing. He sent them back. Now, the writing on the wall is interesting. It, it, you know, mene, mene, tekel, yufarsam, it means, uh, you know, numbered, numbered, weight, and divided to the Persians, that's what it really means. That night, that night, in 539 BC, Babylon changed hands. Let, let, let me see how he did that. How did Cyrus conquer Babylon? How did he do that? Well, most of you might know this. If you look at this little picture, this artist impression, and you look particularly on the right side of the picture, sort of, you can see you have the Easter Gate there, of course, as well. You have that river that goes through the city. You have a river that goes through the city, which is very fascinating. But the Babylonians had made sure that the fences guarded them against anybody using that river. They had bronze gates that came down, and then they also had iron gates on the embankments which were fortified all along the river Euphrates. So how did Cyrus still get in? Cyrus had an idea, and uh, it was a brilliant idea. The only thing is that that idea was actually recorded, uh, well, more than 160 years before he applied it. Cyrus thought he thought of it. But in the book of Isaiah, Cyrus is called by God, his anointed. 
He's mentioned a hundred years before he is born. He calls him by name. He says through the prophet Isaiah, a hundred years before he's even born, I have called you by your name so you may know who I am. I am the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. That's what he says. Now you can imagine when Cyrus sees that, studies that. He is astonished. And he decides that he is going to perform the will of God as it is expressed in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he might have realized that the idea of diverting the water of the river Euphrates, which is what he did, was not really his idea. But being God's anointed, it means anointed, it means uh, endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave him the idea how to get into that city. How did he get into the city? Well, by lowering the water, by drying up, if you like, drying up the water of the river Euphrates. That mighty river, as it came down, well, upstream, he had, a, he had his half of his army building a, a sort of a dike to block the water at a given time, and further downstream, away from the Babylonians that they, as far as they could see, he had a diversion of the water that would, in both instances occurring at the same time, a blockage upstream and a diversion downstream, it would lead to a lowering of the water level right to the ground. And Cyrus knew that. And that's what he employed his army to do. And on a particular night, when they had a big, huge party, Belshazzar's party, which was really a religious feast, when they were drinking out of the vessels that were dedicated to the house of God, to the, the temple in Jerusalem, they were mocking the God of the Israelites. How silly. He learned nothing from his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Too arrogant, too far gone, so insolent towards the God of the Hebrews. Well, all they had to do, all that they had to do is go under Cyrus and the detachment of his best of his men underneath the brass gate, the bronze gates. So they go up the embankment and for some reason, and it was predicted, the gates, the iron gates on the embankment were not closed. He gets in and note what happened. I'll show you. I have some little sketches here. How did Cyrus conquer Babylon? By drying up the river Euphrates. They went underneath that bronze gates. They went up the embankment and they actually got into the city. And all they had to do from the inside is walk towards the Easter gate that you saw on one of the slides, open the gates from the inside. That was easy. And the whole of the army, the Persian armies, the Medo-Persian army swept into the city and the city was taken by strategism. And uh, that is a remarkable truth verified by Herodotus and Xenophon, those well-known Grecian historici. Amazing. So Cyrus, all he had to do, and always like putting it that way, the city was not destroyed. All he had to do is walk in, walk in and put the kettle on. And he was at home. The whole city was delivered in his hand, exactly as the Bible said it would happen. And that is what happened. 
because the Babylonians lost a support base of the river Euphrates. Now, spiritual Babylon is going to go through the same thing. What is the support base of spiritual Babylon? Well, it's all the people that are admiring the beast. All the people, the entities of governance that are supporting this sea beast, the papacy, in its pursuit of enforced worship. And that is exactly what happens and will happen. And so you find that right at the end, the multitudes of the nations which is expressed by the waters, particularly the waters of the river Euphrates, that uphold spiritual Babylon, when that is drying up, and we'll come to this again because the book of Revelation still has a lot to say about this, you will see that the support base, the people now turn against, turn against the beast, spiritual Babylon. So what are the end time players? Well, let's have a look and make sure we identify them properly. I saw, John said, Three unclean spirits like frogs. Why frogs? Well, if you know anything about frogs at all, they catch their praise with their tongues, don't they? Yes, they do. That's how they do that. And uh, the tongue is, the, is basically the emblem of speech. So it's teachings, false teachings, false sayings. We have now an introduction of unclean spirits that are going to be listened to. And those unclean spirits represent spiritism. Now, you know, most of us, I'd like to think, would never get involved in any spiritism. But it is amazing how common it is today, even in an age where we're supposed to live in an age of reason and science. Spiritism is alive and well and really flourishing. And it's been said here by the Bible that right at the end time, at the closing scenes of this planet, spiritism will prevail again. Have a look at this. Have a look at this. Coming out, out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, who is the dragon? Well, the dragon is Satan. But then we know from chapter 12 uh, that uh, the dragon utilized pagan Rome to kill the child. Remember Jesus, the moment it was born, that was the intent. And of course, it failed. So let's say that Satan working through the secular entities, the rulers, out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, this is the papacy, who promotes necromancy, speaking to the dead by praying to the saints. So that is very, she's practicing that already. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, and the false prophet is the mouthpiece for the beast, the papacy, and the false prophet is apostate Protestantism that is going it along with papal Rome. Wow. Well, when you look at that, you say, no, that surely couldn't happen. But can I keep enforcing this? It will happen. It will happen. So we now have spiritism involved. And that can be very deceptive. They spirits of demons. There you have it. Spirits of demons. They do what? Performing signs. Wonders. You know, people will see these signs and wonders and they'll say, wow, this is from God. It isn't. You and I, studying this portion of Revelation, 
know that we are forewarned that signs and miracles are not our guide. There's only one guide. There's only one guide. Study the word of God. It is written. Remember Jesus saying that all the time? It is written. That is the defense that you have. It is written. The demons that go out to the kings of the earth, it's amazing that the leaders of the secular leaders will actually be very much involved in spiritism to the kings of the earth of the whole world. You know, there's a good track history when you look at some of the very prominent leaders in this world, how they utilized spiritualism. It's quite a fascinating study when you look into that. No time tonight, of course. To gather them, that is the, the, the rulers, the entities, to gather them to battle at that great day of God Almighty. Is there going to be a battle right at the end? Oh, yes, there is. The Bible says there will be, but note what kind of battle it is. Now, in between be this and as we continue with this dialogue, there is a little statement comes from Jesus. He says, Behold, I come like a thief. A thief is not expected, of course. Blessed is he who watches. Now the biblical watching is to be in prayer and to be particular what you say, do, think, or how you live. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. What garments? The garments of righteousness that can only come from Christ, which are promised to you if you surrender yourself to him. And keeps his or her garments, notice, lest he or she walks naked and they see his, her shame. Nakedness is like sinfulness. That's an equation. So he... He encourages his people throughout this ordeal as it unfolds and culminates right before the end to be remaining faithful, to persevere, keep the commandments, to watch, and certainly keep and believe in the promise of the garments that will cover us. And they gathered them, as we continue, and they gathered them together to the place, notice, Called in Hebrew, called in Hebrew, and that's an interesting word here, Armageddon. Armageddon. Now, there have been many speculations what Armageddon might mean. I'll tell you what it does not mean. It doesn't mean a physical warfare between, you name it, Muslims, Christianity, Russia, America, or Israel. Not at all. I'm going to explain to you what Armageddon actually means. We've got to go to the story of Elijah, Eliyahu. My God is the Lord. Now you remember, there were sun worshippers. That was the bulk. There was an illicit relationship between state and church. Ahab, Ahab was married to Jezebel, who was a pagan priestess. And so apostasy and the state, state of Israel, had married the ten northern tribes and Jezebel. And there was a persecution of God's people. They were physically 
persecuted and killed by Jezebel. And so sun worship, Baal worship, was rife in the ten northern tribes ruled by Ahab, who was really ruled by Israel, by his wife. Now it's interesting what happened. So Elijah calls a meeting. They come together to a certain place. Now you might remember the name of that place. That place is Mount Carmel. I want to show you something. If you look at this little map, you have here uh, fairly close to Megiddo. You have what is called the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Israel. Many battles were fought there. Many battles. Many battles. And then when you look also at this little map, there is an indication of the location of Mount Carmel. Now, if you've ever been in Israel and you stand on the, on the valley there of Israel or Megiddo, you can look to the west, you can look to the west and you see the elevation of Mount Carmel. It's not very high, but it is distinctive. That is Mount Carmel. And so, and so it also goes by the name, it also goes by the name Har Megiddo. That would be its Hebrew name. Har Megiddo. And Har Megiddo, yeah, what does it mean? Har Megiddo means more or less uh, the mountain of slaughter. I think that that would be an accurate uh, translation, a permissible one. Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, Mount Carmel, where it is decided decided who is God and the decision now you got to understand this the decision is made by whichever God has the capacity the power to bring fire down from heaven and to consume the sacrifice and you remember that the false prophets did get didn't get anywhere but that Elijah when he called on God Fire came down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice and the altar and the water all around it. You remember that? So fire coming down from heaven was a sign of God's approval. It was a sign of God's approval. Now, you know that in Revelation 13, it also says that the false prophet even would have power to bring fire from heaven. That means that the false prophet, the lying miracles and wonders, will so convince people that this is from God, but it is not from God. They are lying, misleading signs and wonders. Again, at the end time even though it seems right to everybody else. It seems like the approval of God, like the fire that came from heaven. Our guide, our guide is what we do here tonight. Study the word of God. Be informed. Be forewarned. And so that's the story of Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Back to the angels of the plagues. We now are arriving to the seventh angel, the last one. Let's have a look at this. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Why into the air? Well, Paul in Ephesians talks about rulers and principalities of the air. Hmm. Could be related. His bowls into the air. 
the punishment, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven, where the judgment had found place, from the throne saying, it is done. Only two times that that has been said. It is on Calvary, it is done, and so it is done right here. It is done. We are now at the conclusion of that great controversy. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Now, you've got to understand, when it says a great earthquake, it is global. We do not, and I know I have emphasized this a few times, but we haven't really realized the significance and the enormity of that cosmic, this, uh, what shall we say, there's no name for it an upheaval that we have never seen or we have no record of will happen at the second coming of Jesus because that is what we talk about here. Such a mighty and a great earthquake and had not occurred since men were on the earth. As I said, we have never witnessed that. Now the great city was divided into three parts. Now what's the great city? Well, that's Babylon the emblem of apostasy and the Bastille of, of rebellion. Falls apart. It's a, it was a, an unholy trinity. Remember? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They now divide it because they have realized the, the people, the, the, remember the Euphrates, the common people, they have realized they have been misled. And you know what? They turn on those whom they have admired and followed in the lead up to this event, they realize, particularly at the end of the plagues as they are coming and falling, they realize that they have been putting their bets on the wrong side. And they realize there is a judgment forthcoming against them. And uh, the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. I think there will be scenes of such incredible violence, and I'm talking human to human, as they realize how they have been misled. There will be incredible scenes of violence. I really believe that. And so it says here, every island fled away. Every island fled away. Australia is an island. Every island fled away. And the mountains were not found. Whole mountain ranges move away. Incredible. Great hail from heaven fell upon men. Notice, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Now, how heavy is a talent? Some say it's 35 uh, pounds, others say it's 50 pounds. You know what? I don't think it matters whether it's 35 or 50 pounds. You get a hay like that. There's no insurance company that'll come up with the repair bill. And so, men, again, there you have it, blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. Three times enduring these plagues, they are blaspheming God, since that plague was an exceedingly great, an exceedingly great plague. And so, that would be a terrible ordeal to suffer. Incredible. And so, this 
lot of warnings tonight about what will happen if you make the wrong decision. Next week, uh, we would like to have a look at a timeline. It's the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. I find that one of the most fascinating chapters. I really hope that you join us again, because that really, that chapter gives us a, an idea where we are in time, right now, so we know where we stand. It's about the scarlet woman and the scarlet beast, and um, I won't tell you any more. I would invite you to read that chapter. It will be helpful, but we'll go through it verse by verse, and I trust you you'll find this very beneficial. You need to see and study and understand the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation in detail. And so I'm grateful for your attention and I really, really mean it when I say I hope and pray that it may benefit you and may add to your salvation. Shall we just bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity granted. Thank you for the wisdom that comes from your word, the warnings that come from your word, and the direction that comes from your word. Lord, help us to be vigilant. Help us to be awake. Help us to be what you want us to be. Give us strength, courage, knowing, Lord, that none of these last plagues if we stay faithful to Jesus, would harm us. None of these plagues. We pray for each and every person that we come in, in touch with, that we may have an influence for good, so they may too consider to place their loyalties with Jesus and would not be the recipients of those terrible, incredibly terrible plagues. And so, Lord, bless us, keep us well, keep us safe, keep us near to your heart, help us to be watchful. And for this we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten. Brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit waitarachurch.org.au.
was Stay the Course by the Hamilton family. Up next, the Tallies will sing Center of My Joy. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment. For all I do Jesus You're the center of my joy When I've lost my direction You are the compass for my way Lord, you're the fire and the light When nights are long and cold In sadness are the laughter that shatters all my fears when I'm all alone your hand is there to hold so I say Jesus you're the center of my joy all that's good and perfect comes from you of my joy Lord you're why I find pleasure in the simple things of life you are the music in all the meadows and the streams you are the voices of the children in our families and our homes and the finish of my highest dreams. That's why I say, Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. Oh, you're the heart of my contentment, hope for all I do. Of my joy, Jesus, you are the center of my joy. Oh, Jesus, you are the center of my joy. Yes, oh, Jesus, you're the center. the two-tip lady, and I love to help make your life more simple. Do you ever wonder how on earth you're ever going to reach a goal? I do, but I've got two tips today 
to help you get there. You know, we live in the bush. Yes, the bush in Australia, where kangaroos love to eat my garden. Possums steal my flowers. Wombats burrow down in their deep holes and snakes sometimes slither past. It can be very beautiful and so peaceful, especially after rain. As I walked along recently, savouring the freshness of the eucalypt-scented air, I was thinking about a statement I'd just heard. Short steps, long vision. And I couldn't help but have it go round and round in my head. Short steps, long vision. What does that mean? Well, I've been thinking a lot about various friends, various people, various needs, and now I'm thinking, ha, yes, there's a key. Develop long vision, but take short steps to get there. The other day I went to the eye specialist, and it's taken quite a few short steps that seem to take forever over the last few months to get better vision. What a blessing it is to have taken those short steps just a little bit at a time. An adjustment here, a bit more surgery there, some patience between those steps, and all of a sudden, it seems like, I can see better. But it's taken somebody else's long vision and the short steps that I've had to take along the way. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who wishes, just wishes he could quit smoking. What if you want to too? What's your long vision? Here's an idea. Think about 10 things that are going to change in your life when you've quit, when you've overcome that habit. Then plan short steps to become free. Short steps, long vision. Wow, list 10 ways that your life is going to change when you're not a smoker anymore. Think about them. Keep those steps inside. Keep those wonderful ways that life is going to change inside. Keep your vision clear. One way that really might appeal is that you're going to have a bit more money in your pocket. Woohoo! You're going to have more energy. Great! You can have clearer breathing. <sighs> your food's going to taste more flavoursome and delicious. Yummo! You'll smell more attractive. Mmm! Think of 10 ways that you're going to feel better when you've kicked that habit. Get that long vision. Now what if you've got a little business, some part-time business? You've got long vision but give yourself the advantage of getting clear on the small steps today that you need to take to get there. They may seem like little dolly steps, but if you have long vision, little steps are going to create your success down the road. What about your long vision for a happy home? If things aren't going really well at the moment in your home, think about some small steps that you can take today that are going to turn that situation around and make your home a happy one. Picture your long vision of a beautiful, happy home where everyone just loves to be in each other's company and where you work together on various projects and you're loving and respectful and kind. So look at the short steps that you would take to create that long vision of having a happy home. Short steps to a long vision. It might be for kicking a bad habit, or having a better business, or a happier home. So tip number one today is a simple one. Here it is. Get a clear picture of your long vision. What exactly will it look like? Grab those binoculars and focus the lenses till you see clearly way down the road. And tip number two is, next, plan your short steps to get there. If you actually do these tips, take action today, 
I can guarantee that life will become simpler and what you've seen in your long vision will become a reality. If your vision is not clear, ask God for wisdom. And remember, we don't have to take these steps alone because Psalms 37.23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. So my two steps today, my two tips today, are number one, get a clear picture of your long vision and remember number two, plan your short steps to get there. That's it from the two tip lady today. With short steps and long vision, your life is guaranteed to become more simple. Really truly. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.